0: Hello and welcome to the 37 Signals Podcast. I'm Matt Linderman. Uh, we're continuing in our Programmer's Roundtable discussion here from our Chicago office. Uh, who are you guys?
1: I'm Jeff Hardy. I'm
0: James
2: Buck. And I'm Jeremy Kemper.
0: Ooh, you guys are more animated this time. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be exciting. Uh, so we're answering uh, questions from readers at Signal versus Noise, and uh, let's get back into it. Michael asks, how many of you believe anyone can learn to program as well as you do?
1: I think anyone can learn how to program. I taught myself how to program, and I thought, I've always had this sense that whenever I saw somebody else doing something, if they could do it, I could do it, and that I just needed to practice. So I think that if you enjoy it, that's all you really need. If you like programming and you do it every day, you'll get good at it.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it's it's a matter of practice. Are you willing to, to practice and do what it takes? And some people take to things more readily than
3: others, but there's no reason... Just keep working at yeah. it. It reminds me of uh, uh, when I was looking forward to learning how to drive and uh, <coughs> just seeing other people do it and having that internal sense of, well, everybody can do these kinds of things. I and mean, right. It's just going to work out. You just got to stick, stick to it. I think I learned it from
1: skateboarding. You know, you would watch videos and you'd watch other people do stuff that seemed impossible, but given enough time and, you know, practice, you could also do it. And then it becomes very natural. And you know, you wonder. It it, it
3: just taught me early on that if I just tried
1: at stuff long enough, I could do it. Yeah, the
3: practice makes a huge difference, and getting into programming and really enjoying it uh, makes it easier. And if you if you want to get into programming as a field because you want a career change or something, but if your heart isn't in it, um, it's going to be hard to put in those hours of just enjoyably pursuing it as a hobby to get to the point where you feel capable as a professional programmer.
2: A, a big reason that Jeremy and, and Jeff and I um, work at 37signals and do what we do is because we've spent time in our free time writing software. It's it's something we enjoy doing even as a hobby on the side. Right. And so yeah, you put in the hours, and, and as corny as it sounds, I've met so many people who say, I could never be a programmer. I could never do that. And when you tell tell yourself stuff like that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy.
3: Yeah. I see that with, uh, it reminds me of math. And people say that they're just bad at math. And that's usually code for, like, I'm anxious about math. I don't feel comfortable with doing an algebra problem on the spot. But anybody can learn that. And anybody can learn how to do algebra. Um, And so totally don't shoot yourself in the foot with that kind of like psychological dagger and mm-hmm. you can definitely do it.
0: What are some of the software projects you guys have worked on on the side?
2: Rails. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, and rails. usually just stuff to solve annoyances with your own computer. I think, you know, I would... I always had this idea that I, I owned the computer. I should be able to make it do stuff. And so... I write a lot of stuff that I just run on my local machine to make things less annoying. Any examples? Yeah, like going through my iTunes library and consolidating things, like (coughs) iterating over files to clean them up, um, just tools for automating like configuration that I would have to do. Um, Pretty much any time I have to do something twice, I'll just write a script for it.
2: And I wrote NetSSH and the SQLite3 Ruby stuff just in my spare time. I wrote uh, an ebook reader for the for the Windows Mobile thing ten years ago. Um, I've done some Palm development just on the side. You know, just if something interested me, I'd dig into it and start tinkering and and gain more experience that way. I learned what I liked and what I didn't like,
0: and yeah. All right, and you guys might have already answered this, but uh, it, there were a lot of questions along these lines. Uh, Mike Graff asked could you make some comments advice for noobs in the programming world and that was a lot of people were asking like what advice do you have for someone who wants to get started in programming so wh- how would you respond to that?
2: It's pretty much what we were saying just, just jump in, just do it. Um, if you overthink it or if you think you have to read a million books before you can jump in you're never gonna get started.
3: Especially pay attention to that meat of really doing something that interests you and solving a problem and mm-hmm. using their programming language as a tool to solve that problem. Something that we see, or I, I've seen among new programmers, is dancing around that central piece of like problem solving with the tool, and worrying more about uh, the libraries you choose or the tools that you ought to be using. Uh, it's like going out to do carpentry and spending most of your time like worrying about your the tool belt you pick and like the kind of screwdriver. And it, those are kind of irrelevant. And if you're into problem solving, solve the problem, and just Mm -hmm. practice doing that. Mm -hmm.
0: Michael Till asks, I would like to know if you use some Agile software development methods, frameworks, especially like Scrum, etc., and what do you think about them and the whole Agile methods revolution in general?
3: I think that's built into the way that uh, most people just naturally work, and so we don't have methods so much. Uh, I'm not really familiar with Scrum. Yeah, Um, I don't even know what it is. I mean, I've heard the word, but I wouldn't be able to describe it. I think the Agile revolution, I think working in an Agile way is is pretty cool, Uh, but I think that's just the way people work, and the Agile revolution was more about changing companies that are full of process and cobwebs and clearing all that out and letting people work in a natural kind of way. Um, And that's where a language like Ruby um, is really awesome because it's, it's human-centered. It's the way that people want to program. It's the way a hobbyist would be working on a weekend rather than a corporate cubicle person working on a Wednesday. Chris asks,
0: are you going to use any advanced artificial intelligence things like machine learning, information retrieval, natural language processing in your products in the future? Why or why not?
2: We've done some of it. With Sortfolio, for instance, we, we uh, plugged into the, the Amazon's Mechanical Turk to help um, filter the portfolio images that people upload. And although that's not necessarily artificial intelligence, um, there is yeah. intelligence involved I there. I
3: think there's, there's uh, Human Time and Backpack, and it's mm-hmm. a little bit of natural language processing, and we had kind of mixed results with it. It was really neat, and it's a cool shorthand, but... When it falls down, it's really confounding. Like, you don't know what to do. Right. I still it's easy
2: to get to the 80% on a lot of this, but the problem is that last 20% is so annoying when it doesn't work right that you almost have to do 100% or nothing to really to hit the sweet spot.
0: Ashton Brown asks, As a web designer coming from a graphic design background, I like to hire programmers for any development. What are some key questions I should be asking them to shed insight on their capabilities and ability to do a good job?
1: opinionated are they like when people have strong opinions about things when they can talk at length about something you have it's a good indication that they're passionate about it um, probably the actual tech doesn't matter like what they're using if they're using Ruby if they're using Python you can get a sense of you know just how much somebody knows about something by how adamant they are about it or how passionate
3: they are about it I'd suggest looking at open source contributions, but it's a little bit more difficult if you're a graphic designer trying to look through somebody else's code. You're not going to get, I mean, you're not going to know what you're looking at. But the mere presence of code is a good indicator, too. And the fact that somebody's contributing at all, that means they're using the tool, means they're scratching an itch, like they ran into something that they thought should be improved or ran into a bug and they fixed it themselves. That level of participation um, is a good discriminator. And I've heard some arguments
2: against, you know, this kind of goes back to the, um, if you want to be a programmer, uh, make sure you enjoy it and, um, and you know, not necessarily have, you know, do it in your free time, but a lot of people I've heard argue back against that saying, how am I supposed to do it in my free time? I've got all this other stuff. And um, you're saying you won't hire me un- unless I, I code in my free time. And it's not... It's not so much that coding in your free time is the important thing, so much as it is that you're showing that you're passionate about it and that you have opinions, like Jeff said, that you feel strongly about about things and that you're not just lukewarm. Yeah, if
1: you're passionate about it, it's likely that it will be using up your free time. Like, you will be. That's the thing you think about. That's the thing you want to make time to do. You would rather be doing that than cutting the lawn. (laughs) Can't wait to get the lawn cut so you can
3: actually go hack on something. I mow the law on weekends because it's so fun, right? and yeah. <laughs> and do it on weekdays too. <laughs> uh, there's there's one other thing with uh, looking for programmers and uh, can be kind of difficult to get a handle on. But just the way that they work, um, and I don't know what question you'd ask, but the ability to ship software uh, is critical. But I'm not sure that you could ask anyone a question. Because everybody would want to feel like they can ship software. I mean, that's the whole point. But, um, so perhaps something about software that slipped, um, software that's been on time and why, um, how they manage the, the very task-oriented part of you actually need to get something done and finished by a certain time. Um, so just asking about how they've managed their work, managed a pro- project, probably help. And probably something we've talked about in other areas, maybe working on a smaller project first with
0: someone before committing to hiring someone full-time to sort Definitely. of try someone out <coughs> might be the best way to really know how you work together Right, with which someone. is what
1: we do, yep. we tend to do. We can trial run
0: people. Try before you buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What's the usual type of project or scope of something where you're trying to test someone out? What's a good target for that?
1: Well, um, Sortfolio is an example. So it was you know, interface first, designed, needed to be wired up so the scope was pretty tight. You could look at the screens and see what it needed to do.
3: Yeah, that's actually a a really good way of probably hiring a programmer. If you're a graphic designer is making a design and seeing how the person would naturally reach out and interact with you to to implement it. Uh, Because having that is to limit scope and Saying, well, I want to I see something and let's time box this to a week and see where we go. See how the person interacts with you, um, what questions they ask, so it reveals their understanding of your design. Um, but, yeah, the trial run is definitely better than asking three questions. Which, what you just described, is the way Jason and
0: David first hooked up in the first place as a designer looking mm-hmm. to hire a programmer to, to help build an actual product. Um all right, let's keep going. Uh Maximilian Sleesia Sleazyask- wonders, what would you do if Ruby didn't exist? Which language would you use? I
1: don't know. If Ruby didn't exist, wouldn't there be another Ruby-like language somebody would have yeah, hit upon something, like something would
3: be filling a sweet spot? Mm-hmm. Right.
1: There are similar languages, like I uh, I don't mind working in Python. Um, but I would, you know, if somebody made a better Python
2: that was more Ruby-like, I would want to use that. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I've always loved the C programming language. It's kind of where I cut my teeth, and I did a lot of work on it at BYU. And um, if I wasn't doing Ruby, I would probably still be doing a lot of C programming. I really enjoyed that.
3: I'd definitely be using Python. Um, I learned Python and Ruby at the same time, and... of worked similar problems, like do a, do something in Python because I'm feeling like it's edging out Ruby in my mental space and then try the same thing in Ruby and feeling like Ruby just kind of fits a little better, like it's tailored to the way I think and the way I work. Uh, but Python was could have been pretty comfortable too. And Alvaris
0: wants to know, what do you think about BPM? Did you try to test or implement it in 37signals?
3: Yeah, I'm not (laughs) quite sure what that means.
2: So if we've implemented it, it was
3: unintentional. If it's an acronym, it's... (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, Manuel says, what do you think about ActionScript slash Flash versus HTML5 slash CSS3?
1: Yeah, I think Apple put
3: the nail in the coffin on Flash. We ignored Flash anyway. Yeah. I mean, why use this tool when we can use these other better tools?
2: We've been using Flash a little bit. Like it's Our advanced uploader in Basecamp is Flash-based, and the, the little ping noise in Campfire right. is a Flash
1: based. So it's basically
3: adding the couple of things that we can't do or we couldn't do right. in HTML. But as soon as, yeah, if
1: the browser could do this on its own, we wouldn't be using Flash
2: to yeah, do it. Yeah, and HTML5 sounds like it's going to fill those gaps. So I think that's where, uh, that's pretty much where we're looking.
3: Yeah, we're definitely moving toward HTML5. We're taking advantage of some of it, um, especially doing optimizations, particularly for the iPhone and iPad, and being able to target WebKit means that HTML5 already works today. We can't roll it out in our main products because not everything is HTML5 compatible yet, but uh, we're getting there.
0: Ahmad Alhashimi asks, I'm sure that each one of you is competent enough to code every feature in hi rise Would you say, though, that any one of you could have gotten it to fruition as a solo developer?
3: It was actually built by a solo developer. So, yeah. David built it over the course of a couple of iterations. And uh, so, I mean, it's technically possible. But it kind of erases the interaction that goes into building an application. I and mean, there's a lot of back and forth between multiple programmers. And then... Designer and a programmer. That um, if you think of it as just like <coughs> building a tower out of Legos, and one brick mm-hmm. at a time, you, you like kind of lose the lose the picture of what you're building.
2: And yeah, the, the kind of the question too then is, um, which high-rise is he talking about? Is he talking about the high-rise that was launched in two thousand and seven, or is he talking about high-rises it exists today? Because the two products are actually pretty different now. And uh, to have written today's high-rise from scratch would have been a much more daunting task, so
0: for a single programmer. Yaroslav Dmitriev wonders how do you share common functionality across your Rails projects?
2: Plugins. Plugins. That's pretty much the the only way we share the functionality. Uh, well, we do some things like with um, was it portfolio, where we're sharing r- functionality via web service. Mm-hmm. Um, to to do avatars and things like that, um, so we've we've kind of branched out a little bit that way. Also with uh, the thirty seven signals ID, that's mostly plug in and a shared database.
3: Mm-hmm. But um, that's something that was new for us. We really pushed back on doing shared models, shared database, um, and thirty seven signals ID is built into the way that each application is modeled. So it turned out to be a pragmatic choice. So, something where we kind of changed our minds, tried something new. Um, in most cases, we aren't sharing things like the domain model itself. We're sharing things like utility libraries, things that that core application would, would use. So, it's kind of at arm's length. And <coughs> 37 Signals ID is the first case where we're actually sharing like an, like an internal organ amongst them all.
0: Eric Hayes wants to know how do you fight feature creep? How do you filter all that's possible down to what's essential? Scope
2: hammer, right? Yeah, the scope hammer.
3: That's pretty natural too, I and mean, it's to me, it's like asking whether we do agile development. Like all of us have this right. kind of built-in sensibility to shed features. Like it's you know, feature feature phobic, I guess. And you know,
2: I'd actually disagree with that. I think yeah? I think a lot of people have a desire for more. Like I know when I'm looking at code, I'm like, yeah, we could do this and we could do this, and I have to kind of step back and take the axe to some of the ideas. Um, so it might be natural to some, but I think people like me, we tend to want to
3: pile more on. I'm thinking in terms of uh, designers, developers talking together. Like when we're in a, we're planning an iteration um, and pushing back, well, I'll push back on designers saying, like, we really need to be able to do this mm-hmm. and to be able to challenge that, well, it's going to take more time, it's going to take more work, um, and despite uh, designers being... I mean, they respect that, uh, but at the same time, you need a coherent design. But every part needs to be checked to have that kind of pushback of, do we really need all that? Do we really need all that? Mm-hmm. When it comes to code internals, um, I'll get into aesthetic judgments where you're looking at code and it just I mean, it's fun to be able to go in and beautify code, and take some some uh, you start it step one, and you go through multiple iterations, improving code, and then once you're at step ten, looking back, uh, it's easier to see kind of the full like, history of intention, so you could rewrite it to, to make the current code match the whole history of where you'd arrived, rather than being layers of things being added one after another. So you could make it prettier, <coughs> but that's often wasted effort, because what you have works, what you have got you from, through step one through ten. Um, and it 's definitely not worth the time to you know make a very uh beautiful object just for its own sake, but if I were programming on the weekend on my own library that 's exactly what i 'd be doing so it 's a little bit at odds, like trying to hold back on making those choices during the week.
2: Another way of answering uh, of looking at that question is to step back and say what what needs to happen. To get this feature live, what you know, not necessarily what's the minimum I need to do. I mean, that's part of it. But um, if something isn't necessary for the initial launch, then you might as well not do it at least immediately. We we'll, we'll often say that's version two, or you know, what are we what are we looking at for version one? And just looking forward, saying we can do these other things, but not right now. So that's that's one way to kind of compromise with the feature creep is to say. That's a good idea, and we may do that, but let's prioritize that down a little bit and focus on the essentials.
0: All right, we've got a few more questions, but why don't we wrap up this episode here. You can go to 37signals.com podcast for other episodes. We post transcripts there uh, and also related links to each episode. So we'll be back with the programmers again.
3: Bye. Bye.